Welcome this morning to City Reach. Let me extend my welcome to all of you who are in this room and all the people who are over in the cafe. And if you're watching online this morning, I just want to extend my welcome to you. Uh, this past week, a precious dear brother in our church, Lloyd Beasy, passed into glory, passed to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Lloyd was a, a very, very faithful member of our church for many years. He was part of the Thermos Club who actually did a lot of work on the property and just was a faithful man. He took me out for lunch often to pray with me and to, to encourage me. Uh, and, uh, and he's now gone to be with his precious wife and gone to be with his Lord and Savior. Passed away on last Tuesday. The family are just going to have a private sort of funeral and, uh, and uh, because they're separated because of the things that are happening in uh, our country at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, our thoughts go out and condolences go out to uh, the Beezy family. Well, open up your Bibles. <laughs> Aren't you glad for the truth of the Bible? Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus said, my word will not pass away. I know it's no one's fault. This is an expression that is common in our family. I know it's no one's fault. I coined that expression because I would come ac across these messes in our home and I would say, Hannah, is it your fault? No. Abby, is it your fault? No. Uh, Isabella, Ava, Emma, is it your fault? No. Well, it must be Winston's fault, right? I don't know if this happens in your, in your house, Jono, but like magic, you know, messes just magically appear. And so what I did in order to overcome all of this self-justification and all of that sort of language is I came up with this expression, I know it's no one's fault. And I would tack this on the, end of some on the beginning of some correction. I know it's no one's fault, but if you do take a DVD out and you play a DVD, can you please put it back in its case and put it away afterwards? I know it's no one's fault. You see, we all have this sinful tendency, don't we? to justify our actions. We don't like to admit that we are wrong and that we've done wrong. And we, we tend to like to place blame at the feet of other people. Well, this morning, as we come into John 18 and 19, we've looked at the arrest of Jesus earlier in John 18. And now we're going to look at the trial of Jesus, which leads to his crucifixion, which will be next week. And it's one of the most darkest moments in human history. And the question I want to ask this morning is this question. Whose fault is it? Who is to blame for the death of the Son of God? Whose fault is it for the death of this innocent one, Jesus? Well, this morning, like a good detective, I want to introduce from the narrative some possible suspects who might be to blame for the death of the innocent one, Jesus. The first people that I want to bring a case against, the first people I want to put forward as potential suspects is the high priestly family. Please open up your Bibles to John 18, and you'll notice down in verse 11 that it's late Thursday night. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas into the hands of the soldiers. And then we read this in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now during the first century, the office of high priest was essentially the same as the king. However, this appointment had to be approved by Rome and they had to govern under Roman authority. 
And although John says in verse 13, Caiaphas officially held the office that year, many recognize that his father-in-law, Annas, was the true power behind the throne. You see, originally, Annas had been um, appointed to high priest in AD 6 by Quintus, but he was later deposed by the Romans, and then his five sons took office, and then later his son-in-law, Caiaphas. However, the Jewish people, they considered the high priest to be a lifelong office, so it was natural for them to consider Annas, the old man, as being still the one in control. So that's why they took him to Annas. But why were they so upset with Jesus? Why did this high priestly family, the religious leaders, have it in for Jesus? Well, to begin with, Jesus was a regular. Though he posed as a rabbi, he didn't enter the correct door or climb up the correct ladder. He had no credentials, no proper authorization. Next, he had courted controversy by his provocative behavior. He ate with sinners. He feasted instead of fasting. He profaned the Sabbath by healing people on it. Not content with the tradition of the elders, he actually rejected them wholesale and criticized the Pharisees for exalting tradition above Scripture. They cared more for regulations than for the person, he said, more for ceremonial cleansing than real purity, more for laws than for love. He denounced them as hypocrites, called them the blind leading the blind, and he likened them to whitewashed tombs. They might have a good appearance outside, but inside they are full of death. These were intolerable accusations. Worse still, he was undermining their authority, and at the same time, he was making outrageous claims that he was Lord of the Sabbath, that God was uniquely his father, and that he was even equal to God. It was blasphemy. So they were full of self-righteous indignation over Jesus. His doctrine was heretical. His behavior was an affront to the sacred Lord. He was leading people astray. As John records in John 11 verse 47, Caiaphas had said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nations. So let's get rid of this blasphemer and let's keep the peace with the Romans. But there was even a more sinister reason for their opposition to Jesus. You see, the high priestly's family, the high priest's family was in charge of the temple business. And you see, religion is a pretty good business to be in, and you can make a lot of money out of religion. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, is once quoted as saying, if you really want to make a million dollars, the best way is to start your own religion. And interestingly enough, after that, he started a religion, Scientology. Well, Annas and Caiaphas and their family made a lot of money out of the temple business. You see, Annas and his family had a monopoly over the animals that were deemed acceptable for sacrifice in the temple. If you wanted to make a sacrifice, you had to buy an animal from them, and they had set up these four famous booths known as the booths of the sons of Annas on the Mount of Olives within the temple precincts. And as I said, this business was pretty good for Annas and his family. But this was all up until Jesus came along, because not once... But twice Jesus cleansed the temple and he announced, My father's house shall be a house of prayer for the nations, but you are making it a den of robbers. This would have aroused the anger 
of Annas and his family towards Jesus. Well, down in verse 19, we read about the first of three trials that they took Jesus through. John records only one of these trials, the one in front of Annas, but they were all the same. They're all just a farce. In verse 19, we read, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. You know, some people call into question the historicity of the Gospels because the trials of, of Jesus before the Jewish authorities don't fit with established Jewish protocol for legal trials. But that's precisely the point of the Gospel authors. This is a kangaroo court. This is a farce. You see, according to Jewish tradition, no trial was to be held in secret or at night, and the only proper place to hear a criminal case was at the hall of judgment in the temple. Obviously, this trial was breaking both of those rules. It was in Annas' house, and it was at night. Furthermore, when hearing evidence, the accused could not be compelled to testify in his own case. All charges had to be substantiated by two or three witnesses. And Jesus calls for witnesses. Down in verse 21, we read this. He says, why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You see, everything Jesus had said and done, he had done publicly. And he knew that if they got the witnesses, that the witnesses would exonerate him. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Once again, Jesus says, bring forth the witnesses. If you want to make an accusation, bring forth the witnesses. You see, it's pretty clear that Jesus is innocent and they just have it in for him. Now, John doesn't mention it. He just simply says in verse 24 that Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. But from the other gospels, we know that there would be another trial in front of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and then there would be another trial in the morning, an official one in front of the Sanhedrin to issue the formal verdict. So who is to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, I think that John squarely places the blame, firstly, at the feet of the religious leaders who wanted Jesus killed out of their envy for his authority, out of their greed to maintain their own business. As Jesus said to Pilate in verse 11 of chapter 19, you have no authority at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you, has the greater sin. The he, I think, that Jesus is referring there to is to the high priest and his family. But is that it? Are they the only ones to blame? Should we just put the blame for the crucifixion of Jesus at the feet of the high priestly family, the religious leaders? Well, the second person I want to put forward as a possible suspect to blame for the death of Jesus is the governor, Pilate. In chapter 19, verse 16, we read that Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. So it was Pilate who issued the sentence 
The death sentence to an innocent man. Certainly he must be blamed for that. But who was Pilate? Well, Pontius Pilate was in Roman office from AD 26 to AD 36, but he was not greatly liked by the Jews. He could be absolutely ruthless, but he was a very astute politician. But there are two things that John makes clear from his account about Pilate and Jesus. The first thing that John makes clear is that Pilate found Jesus completely innocent. Look down your Bibles in verse 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the Roman headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? What's the charge that you're bringing against Jesus? I need to have a legal charge. Look down in verse 30. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil... We wouldn't, deliver it, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Just trust us, Pilate. Trust us. We, we know what we're talking about. Well, Pilate was not anxious to get involved in the Jewish court case, especially at Passover. So he tried to evade the issue. Look down in verse 31. He says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. In other words, I don't want to have anything to do with this. But the Jews responded by saying, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, obviously, they were speaking of Roman law. You see, the Jews were an occupied people, and as an occupied people, they um, didn't have the authority to put anyone to death. But when you read the Gospels, you realize that didn't really stop them before. Like, there was this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and what did they do? They picked up stones to stone her. Now, I think when they say these words, it's not legal for us to do this. I think behind that, they knew that Jesus was innocent and they wanted to wash their hands of his blood. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? This was the hub of their accusation against Jesus, that Jesus was setting himself up as a rival king to Caesar. Well, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. You see, Jesus is saying, I am a king, but my kingdom... My authority is not just worldly authority. It doesn't come from this world. And therefore, it really is no threat to Caesar. As Jesus would teach his followers, you render to Caesar what is Caesar's and you render to God what is God's. But notice that Jesus also didn't say that he didn't have a kingdom and that he wouldn't come to reign on the earth. We know that Jesus does have a kingdom. All those people who believe in Jesus and bow their knee to King Jesus, they enter into his kingdom. And there is coming a day when Jesus will set up his kingdom on earth, when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. But what Pilate's concern was, 
was what is the source of your kingdom, Jesus? Where does your authority come from? Are you going to pick up the sword and are you going to challenge Rome? Are you going to lead an insurrection? So he asked him again, so you are a king. To which Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who listens to truth listens to my voice. You see, in answering Pilate's question, Jesus not only told Pilate his origin, that he had come from heaven, he'd come into this world from God, but he was also telling him about his ministry. His ministry was to bear witness to the truth. You see, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and he won people to his cause not through force, but through conviction and persuasion of the truth. He spoke the truth of God's word. And what we need to hear today, people, is we need to hear the same thing. You see, the type of kingdom we are in is not a kingdom of the sword. Whenever the church has lifted up the sword and sought to exert its political power and authority, it's gone bad. But whenever the church has lifted up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and taught the Bible and taught biblical truth, You see, the kingdom of Christ advance in the hearts of people and lives change. Well, in verse 38, Pilate responds very existentially, what is truth? (laughs) Now, we don't know whether Pilate was asking sincerely, what is truth? Or whether he was just sort of mocking Jesus. But he went back out and he told the Jews his verdict, I find no guilt in him. And that was the verdict. He'll say it two more times. I find no guilt in Jesus. But not only does John assert that Pilate found no guilt in Jesus. The second thing that John asserts about Pilate is that Pilate tried to avoid having come down clearly on one side or the other concerning Jesus. You see, Pilate wanted to avoid sentencing Jesus because he believed he was innocent. But also at the same time, he didn't want to exonerate him since the Jewish leaders believed he was guilty. So how could he reconcile these two things? Well, in the Gospels, we see him wriggling as he attempts to release Jesus and yet pacify the Jews. And he tried four ways, four evasion tactics. Tactic number one, on hearing that Jesus was a Galilean, he sent him to Herod. But Herod sent him back. Second, he tried to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. He he, he tried to release Jesus, but he tried to do it in a very crafty way. He knew that at Passover time, you would have to release a prisoner. And so he put the choice before the people. He said, well, I want to release someone. I'll release Barabbas, a known criminal, or Jesus. Who do you want? And they, of course, yelled out, give us Barabbas. Third, at the beginning of chapter 19, He thought that he would satisfy their lust for blood by just having Jesus flogged and scourged. And he he took Jesus out and he placed them before the Jews and he said, Behold the man. You know, these words are so interesting to me, that phrase, behold the man. Because they're the same words that John uses way back in chapter 1 when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold him. And they they rejected him once more. 
But if Jesus was innocent, he should have just been immediately released, not flogged. And finally, finally, Pilate tried to appease his conscience by protesting his innocence. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, as recorded by Matthew in Matthew 27, 24. And he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. So who is to blame for the death of Jesus? Well, certainly Pilate must accept some blame as well. I mean, if he really believed that Jesus was innocent, then as the governor, as the judge, he should have let him go. He should have stood up to the religious leaders and let this innocent man go free. But he didn't. He gave the order to have him crucified. So who is to blame for the death of Jesus? Well, we've seen that the gospel authors point in the direction of the religious leaders and the Jewish people. We see that the gospel authors point in the direction of Pilate. You know, even the early church, the early church recognized that the Jews were culpable for killing the Messiah. Peter, in his Pentecostal sermon, he said to the Jewish people, he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And they didn't deny it. They were cut to the heart as they recognized their guilt for killing Jesus. And they repented and turned back to God. But you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful with blaming just the Jews for the killing of Jesus. That sort of language has been used throughout the history of the church to justify anti-Semitic behavior, awful behavior, awful, terrible behavior. Martin Luther, a great reformer of the church, he wrote many great things at the beginning of his life, but at the end of his life, he wrote horrible anti-Semitic things. But John Stott, in his book on the cross of Christ, he gives us this wise advice. He says, the way to avoid anti-Semitic prejudice is not to pretend that the Jews were innocent or Pilate was innocent, but having admitted their guilt, it's to add others into it. You see, who is to blame for the death of Jesus? It's not just the Jews and the religious leaders. It's not just Pilate who's to blame. It's you. It's me. The old Negro spiritual says, were you there when they crucified our Lord? And the answer must be, yes, we were. Not as spectators, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, handing him over to be crucified. We may like to wash our hands like Pilate, but Jesus' blood is on our hands. John Stott says again, before we can see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. Horace Bonner, who was called the prince of the Scottish hymn writers, he expressed it well in one of his hymns. He says, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him through the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. 
Around the cross the throng I see, suffer, mocking the sufferers groan, yet still my voice it seems to be as if I mocked alone. You see, who's to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, on the one hand, the gospel authors point to the religious leaders and Pilate and the soldiers. But this is not the complete picture because also Jesus didn't just die as a martyr. On the contrary, he died voluntarily. From the very beginning of his earthly ministry, he knew where he was headed. And even in this account, we see in verse 32, it says that all of these, took, all of these things took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. He was going to die on the cross because it said in the law, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. He became a curse for us. So it's essential, my friends, that we keep these two ways of looking at the cross, these two contours of the cross together. On a human level, Judas gave him up to the priests, who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers who crucified him. But on a divine level, the Father gave him up, and he gave himself up to die for us. So as we face the cross, this is so awesome, listen to this. As we face the cross, we can both say, I did it. My sins put him there. But we can also say, he did it. His love took him there. So this is the amazing thing about the cross. At the cross, we have this amazing revelation of evil. And I am certain that when people look to the cross, they are wrecked by it. They recognize their guilt. But also at the cross, we have this amazing revelation of God's love. And so that is why... Paul said, whenever I preach, I preach the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The apostle Paul would say, I boast, what I boast in is I boast in the cross of Christ by whom the world has become crucified to me and I to the world. I know it's no one's fault. Well, it is. It's your fault. It's my fault. We put Jesus on the cross, but Jesus went there willingly because he loves us so that we might be redeemed and cleansed and set free. But what you, do, what you need to receive Jesus into your life is you need to become a member of his kingdom. The Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. Will you today bow your knee and say, I have no king but Christ. I have no king but Jesus. And will you enter into his kingdom? Come under his authority as your king, the king who loves you, who died for you, so that you could come into his kingdom. And let me tell you, this kingdom of this world is passing away. What more evidence do you need this world is passing away. Our politicians have no hope. A technology will not save us. Only he can save us. Only God can save us. And he has through his son's work on the cross. 
Will you bow your knee and give your life to Jesus today at the cross? Let me pray. Lord, it was I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Oh Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in hearts this morning and do that work that only you can do where you reveal to us the depth of our sin and the beauty of your grace given for us on the cross. And I pray that as Christians here today, we would see that refresh again, fresh again today. And that we would say we have no king but Jesus. No king but Jesus. He is our king. He is our king. He is our Lord. We bow to him and give our allegiance to him and him alone.